please turn with me to uh, the book of Joshua, and we've reached um, chapter 7. We're thinking about a different kind of warfare. We're thinking about spiritual warfare. And spiritual warfare for us, as a church, as the New Testament people of God, uh, is that process whereby we share the gospel with people. That's our offensive warfare, that's our outward-facing warfare. We want to tell people the good news of Jesus Christ so they can become part of God's kingdom. But also, as we, even as we go out uh, and do that witnessing, that uh, outward-facing warfare, so there is also a different facet to the warfare, which is we stand against the world getting back into our lives. We have to stand against compromise. And we're learning these principles um, from the book of Joshua. So today I'm going to read um, chapter 7. And then I'll pray. And I think you'll see why I'll pray when we get to the end of it. If you've read it before. Um, This is happening, to put it in context, this is happening immediately after after the, the Battle of Jericho. And the chapter starts with this word, with but. Just had this fantastic victory, but the Israelites are unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. They were told to go into Jericho and destroy everything. Everything of Canaanite culture. The only thing they didn't destroy was Rahab and her her family, Uh, who had trusted in the Lord and said they wanted to become part of Israel. That was an option open to all of the city, uh, but they didn't take it. Only Rahab um, took that offer up. So, the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. All the people, all the livestock, uh, the city itself should have been destroyed. Achan son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. And so the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Now Joshua, not knowing this, sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, to the east of Bethel, and told them, go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. And when they returned to Joshua, they said, "Not not all the army will have to go up against Ai. Send two or three thousand men to take it, and don't weary the whole army, for only a few people live there. So about three thousand men went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about thirty-six of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. And then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same. They sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us in the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we'd been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Pardon your servant, Lord. What can I say now that Israel had been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this and they will surround us and wipe out your name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? The Lord said to Joshua, Stand up. What are you doing? 
down on your face. Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Go, consecrate the people, tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. There are devoted things among you, Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. In the morning, present yourselves tribe by tribe. The tribe that the Lord chooses shall come forward clan by clan. The clan that the Lord chooses shall come forward family by family. And the family that the Lord chooses shall come forward man by man. Whoever is caught with the devoted things shall be destroyed by fire, along with all that belongs to him. He has violated the covenant of the Lord and has done an outrageous thing in Israel. Early the next morning, Joshua made Israel come forward by tribes and Judah was chosen. The clans of Judah came forward and the Zerahites were chosen. He made the clans of the Zerahites come forward by families and Zimri was chosen. Joshua made his family come forward man by man and Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah was chosen. Then Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel and honor him. Tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Achan replied, it's true. I've sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I've done when I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia. You can almost hear his voice change, can't you? I saw a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. I coveted them and took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and there it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. They took the things from the tent, brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites and spread them out before the Lord. Then Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold bar, his sons and daughters, his cattle, donkeys and sheep, his tent, and all that he had to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him. And after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. And over Achan, they heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. And then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. And therefore, that place has been called the Valley of Achor ever since. Let's pray. Father God, we don't want to be like Israel. There were people who went out without your presence because they'd sinned. So even as we start to come to your word this morning, Lord, we ask that you will be present. 
You're the God who caused it to be written down, caused it to be preserved. You're the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Please, Lord, if we have compromised, if we have failed you, even before we come to your word, we ask today for your forgiveness. We ask that we might, even as we read, even as we think about this, know your presence again. We pray, Lord, that we might know the presence of the living God amongst us. For the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. So, I have my laptop, Sam. That's, yeah, it's coming. There we go. Our God is a holy and a just God. And he destroys people. Our God is a holy and a just God. And he reserves the right to withdraw his presence when his people compromise with the values of other people who oppose him. So we've turned to one of the most disturbing chapters in the Bible. If you want to pick up the um, study notes there, they're just on the windowsills there and there. Um, So in many ways, it's a parallel to the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. We'll not look at that this morning. You can pick that up for yourselves. But both of them occur, both these stories, at the, when the kingdom of God is entering a new phase, a new expression. And in both of them, we, we see that the being dishonest before the Lord is a heinous crime. To compromise with the values of the people around you who are in opposition to the Lord is, is folly of the utmost. And so today, as we get in Acts 5, we get a lesson in separating. Separating from sin. And that's what the Bible means from holiness, by holiness. So in this story, just as we might expect Israel to kind of press forward and, and conquer the land, they come to a shuddering halt. Because within the victory, there has been a defeat. Within this outward victory, when they went in, they charged in, the walls of Jericho came down um, without human intervention. Uh, they went in, uh, they rescued Rahab, they devoted the rest to destruction, or at least they should have done. But within that victory, there is a defeat, an inner hidden defeat that brings the whole campaign of Israel going into the land into question. And it's all about the devoted things. The Lord has charged the people of Israel with the complete destruction of anything associated with the Canaanites. It is not genocide. We should think of the Canaanites as, as being um, like Nazis, except with many more generations to have repented. We look back and, and think of the Second World War as a just war, rightly so, I would say where force had to be used uh, against something that was evil. And that, and that is what Israel are doing. But they, they're, they're doing it um, with the Lord's say-so, with more than the Lord's say-so, with the Lord's command. And they are a nation-state, and they have the right. And they've been charged then with complete destruction from anything associated with, with the Canaanites. We've talked about that before. It's a lesson in separating from sin. 
as you go in and take this land, you're bringing judgment on these people, which, of course, in the New Testament economy, we don't. But as they go in, will they manage to bring this judgment and take this land without compromising with the values of the people who are already there? And in this, the Israelites, they were unfaithful. Achan took some of them. So just have a quick look. If you've got your Bibles open, just go back, turn back the page. And perhaps this is, uh, just here back in, in verse 1, this, this will make you uncomfortable. I, I tell you what, there's, there's plenty that's going to make you uncomfortable this morning. But here's the first bit. The Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Listen, the Israelites, all of them, were unfaithful. Achan took some of them, so the Lord's anger burned against Israel. So you see, I think in our individualistic Western first world society, we, we, we scratch our heads at this. Hang on a minute. One, one man's sin, the Lord's anger burns against them all. Well, let me just give you a, a couple of illustrations. I wonder if you think about the football team and you think of kind of like England and, and Joe Hart letting the ball slip through his fingers. They play as a team. Um, if, if Joe Hart lets the ball dribble between his legs, a goal is scored and the team lose. Because they play as a team, because they are bound together in this one enterprise. If, if he fails, the rest of them fail. Or maybe you'd think about a company situation. And, um, uh, you know, a massive, uh, you know, national company and some lowly post clerk uh, forgets to post the insurance renewal letter. And, and then um, somebody has, a, there's a major industrial accident and the company is bankrupt because the insurance letter never got posted. It's not impossible, is it, to think of parallels whereby when you play as a team, when you work as a team, then the failure of one becomes a failure of everybody. <clears throat> I'm sure you still find that strange, but one writer says, we, we do, rather than complain, we do better to fear. We do better to fear. Fear sin. Fear compromise. So as church, we play as a team. It's a team enterprise, what, what we do. So individual sin, individual compromise affects us all. It is never an individual matter. You can never say, when you face an issue of compromise, the issue of sin, you can never say, well, it, it doesn't affect anybody else. It is not true. And so Israel have brought on themselves a, a, a defeat. Joshua um, follows the pattern he's, he's used before. Uh, he sends out the spies. Do you remember kind of Johnny English? The Johnny English of Hebrew spies. These two seem, oh, uh, I don't think we're told they're two. They send out the spies, but they're a bit more efficient um, than the spies who, was, who were sent out before. Uh, and the reason for that is because he doesn't know the land. He doesn't even know where the next town or city is, and he doesn't know what it looks like. 
And these guys go out and they come back and say, well, the next one, next city is AI. It's small. It's about 10 miles away in the West. Two or three companies uh, of men will do the job. Uh, so in the end, three, three, commenta- three companies go out. But they're routed. 36 men are, are killed. You might think this is not a massive percentage. Maybe that's not a big deal. The grand scheme of in- international warfare, but it's 36 more people than were killed at Jericho. Israel's army are humiliatingly chased um, out of AI, down the quarries, being killed as they go. And this is what happens to God's people when there's unconfessed compromise in the ranks. The Lord withdraws his presence. This is the one thing that makes Israel different from all the other nations, that the Lord, Yahweh, is, is with them. This is the one thing that should mark out the church as different from other people because the Lord is here, because the Lord is is present with us. Nothing, one writer says, should disturb God's people more than the loss of God himself from among them. Nothing should disturb God's people more than the loss of God himself from among them. And what happens when God goes? from Israel or from us, would just look like everybody else. Just look like everybody else. And what happened? The hearts of the people of Israel now melted in fear. Back in chapter 2, Rahab gives a report and says, all of Jericho and all of the land, they're melting in fear because God is with you. Now it turns, the situation is reversed. It's Israel that's melting in fear because God is not with them. And so Joshua is dismayed, the elders are dismayed. Throw themselves on the ground before the ark of the Lord. It's the symbol of God's presence. It's the place of his mercy seat. They do it for the remainder of the day. They throw dust on their heads. They're full of grief and mourning and maybe not a little fear. What's gone wrong? But at the moment, they know nothing about Achan. They know nothing about this need for repentance. And so they pray what somebody's called the default position of the believer when something has gone wrong. So this is kind of default prayer of the Christian when something's gone wrong. Why have you let this happen, is the first thing. Implication, God, it's your fault. You were responsible. (coughs) You see this in uh, verse uh, 7 and onwards. We would have been better off if we just stayed the other side of the Jordan. Isn't that a kind of horrible thing to say? Do you, do, you, do you ever come to the Lord when things are wrong and say, God, what, what are you doing? Which is the implication that, it, that it's his fault. Second thing is, I would have been better off if I'd not taken this risk uh, in trusting you and stepping out, maybe, whatever it was uh, you've done. Third thing, I, I'm disgraced. Lord, I'm, I'm going to look an idiot. Concern for our own public face. Our enemies will destroy us, he says. We're doomed, to put it in um, Dad's army kind of terms. And then he says, what will happen to your reputation? Which is the point at which he starts to get uh, back on track. What's he forgotten in his praying? 
He's forgotten those promises. Chapter 1, keep this book of the law always on your lips, meditate on it day and night, then you will be prosperous and successful. What does the book of the law say? Well, back in Exodus, listen to this. See, I am sending an angel ahead of you to guard you along the way and to bring you to the place I've prepared. And maybe that angel is the commander of the Lord's army. Pay attention to him. Listen to what he says. Don't rebel against him. He will not forgive your rebellion since my name is in him. If you listen carefully to what he says and do all that I say, I will be an enemy to your enemies and will oppose those who oppose you. If you do what I say, precisely and completely, I will be an enemy to your enemies. But there's a flip side, obviously, isn't there? If you don't, I won't. Joshua, of course, has still not understood that the problem is sin. So his prayer is, sounds a little bit self-pitying and, uh, and, and full of dismay because he's forgotten the promises. But his prayer may be all wrong, but he's come to the right place. He's come to the right place. <clears throat> and eventually, he gets probably to the, point, uh, to the important point. What, Lord, will happen to your reputation? We don't like to pray that kind of prayer, but it's a good prayer. It's actually a good motivation to pray. It's just say to God, if you let me down in this, what will happen to your name? <clears throat> to be concerned for the honor of God's name is a good thing. So do you feel that something has failed? You know, you've gone forward on something, maybe there was, there was a thing of trust and something's failed. <clears throat> then the right place is on your face before the Lord. Get on your face. And, and pour it out. And David Jackman says, we may get it all wrong, that doesn't matter, tell God anyway. Hopefully somewhere in your prayers you will say, God, what about your name? What about your name? So if it's going wrong for you, get on your face. Is it going wrong for the church? Well, yes. Church in this country, to be sure. It's time to get on our faces. Say, Lord, what about the honor of your name? And it's when Joshua prays that prayer that the Lord gives his diagnosis. He tells him to stand up. What are you doing down on your face? I don't need your self-pity prayers. And the problem is not a lack of prayer. The problem, the Lord says, is sin. The problem is compromise. You have forgotten by promises. And by the standard of my promises, we have a problem. The problem is sin. The problem is, is compromise. And what has happened here? Israel have sinned. They have violated my covenant, God says. They have chosen not to be in relationship with the Lord. Chosen not to trust the Lord at this point. By not destroy, devoting the uh, devoted things, not destroying the devoted things, that they've chosen to be out of relationship with God because that was the covenant. So what they've done by taking those things is, is joined with the opposition. They've joined with the opposition. And if you join with the opposition, they have made themselves liable to destruction. They face the same penalty that the opposition face. And there's only one solution, which is that the devoted things must be destroyed. So God says, consecrate yourselves, and tomorrow we will sort it out. And then comes the disclosure. The Lord gives instructions for resolving the issue. It's a process. 
That is quite a long process, isn't it? Uh, they're going to get all of the 12 tribes uh, to present themselves before Joshua, uh, and they'll cast lots, and the lot that comes up will be the tribe uh, that is chosen. I wonder how long that took. And then from that, from that tribe, clan by clan will come forward, the lots will be thrown, um, a clan will be chosen. Then family by family, and then man by man. Why this slightly long-winded kind of process? Well, I think a couple of reasons. It, it, just, it demonstrates the Lord's sovereign knowledge and the Lord's sovereign control. The Lord knows precisely who it is, and the Lord controls all circumstances enough that he makes sure the lot falls right. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? That Israel is just going to cast lots, but in the Lord's providence, it will point the finger precisely. No human wisdom is required. No working things out. Just do what the Lord says. And most, actually, most of the time, actually, if you're diagnosing sin, it's not really complicated to just do what the Lord says. But the second thing it does is it, it just reinforces this lesson to Israel that the sin of one defiles the whole. Achan has disgraced his family. So his family have disgraced the clan, so his clan has disgraced the tribe, and the tribe has disgraced Israel to the extent that all of them are made liable to, to destruction. The nation plays as a team, and that means everyone is implicated. And thirdly, I think as well, it makes the point that all are responsible for tackling sin. He may have sinned, but everybody, is, everybody plays a part in dealing with sin. Let me read to you from Colossians. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly. The word of Christ dwell among you richly as... You teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So not only does your individual sin impact the whole, but you are responsible for seeing that your brothers and sisters don't trip up and don't continue in things that are wrong. There's nobody who escapes that responsibility we either deal with sin or we lose the presence of God there there is no middle ground there is no way round that so churches have to deal with sin as gently as they can but a church that doesn't deal with sin with compromise when it is seen is a church that loses the presence of God, is a, is a church that makes itself liable to defeat uh, in the battles that it faces. And there's a principle in Matthew 18, and Jesus said this, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen, you've won them over. If they won't listen, take two others along, so that every matter may be established by a testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. 
and if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. We are all responsible for, for dealing with sin. And we deal with it. I think the principle of Matthew 18 is you deal with it as privately as is possible. But if it doesn't get dealt with in private, it comes before the, comes before the church. And then when it comes before the church, for in our case, the church meeting, then obviously it's become public. Deal with it as privately as possible. But equally, if it's already become public, then it gets dealt with publicly. But here again, I mean, maybe another reason for this process is that we see with Achan, uh, he thinks it's a private sin. He thinks it's not going to uh, affect anybody else. And what happens under the Lord's, here the Lord's specific command, but what can happen in the church under the Lord's providence is things that you think of are, are private pop out. So let's not get there. But as a church, if we do, we do. And we deal. So Joshua calls on Achan. He says, give glory to God. Tell me what you've done. You hear that in the New Testament, don't you? The Pharisees say that. I think they say that to Jesus. Give glory to God. Tell me what you've done. And Achan confesses. He's honest about what he's done. You don't hear any remorse. And he can't give glory to God by telling a lie, can he? Give glory to God, tell me what you've done. And, and there's a flip side to that. If you're planning to come to praise and you're living a lie, you can't give glory to God. But let's look at what um, Achan says. He says, I saw, I just saw this beautiful robe. He's almost like, sounds like an excuse, doesn't it? Oh, I saw this beautiful robe. You know, you would have done the same. Uh, there was 200 shekels of silver and there was his gold bar. And he says, I coveted them. I wanted them. And I couldn't resist. Uh, and I took them. What does that remind you of? I'll tell you what, that's the way sin always works, isn't it? Since Eve, she says, oh, I saw. Saw that fruit. It looked amazing. I, I wanted the wisdom that it gave. I took it and I ate. This is always the way sin works. You see something, you want it, you take it. James says this, uh, each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desires and, and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. That's always the way it works. So we have to ask ourselves the question. <clears throat> Not because I'm asking you to ask the question, but because it, it's here in Scripture and because it's the church, we need the presence of God uh, amongst us going forward if, if, we're, if we're to do anything. So we have to ask ourselves the question, have I brought anything back? When I've been out there amongst the Canaanites, have I brought anything back and, and hidden it in the bottom of my mental tent. Were there treasures out there that you, you brought back into your house, which have, then under, which have made them us liable to defeat? What might that be? Well, it might be wealth. Money in, is not in itself a wrong thing, but... Trusting in money for, for security is a wrong thing, isn't it? So I wonder, whether did you bring from out there a little statue of mammon? 
and kind of hid it in the bottom of your tent. Think I'm a nice Christian, but actually I'm just stacking up this amount of money and that just keeps me secure um, for a rainy day. Well, knock him down and make sure you bring your first fruits to the Lord, bring your tithe to the Lord. Not because as church we need to be financed, but because you need it for your own spiritual health and to make sure that you're not trusting in wealth. What do the Canaanites, what are the gods of the Canaanites? Well, the little god of celebrity. So you're out there kind of like, um, I was going to say tarting up, let's say it, tarting up your um, Facebook you know, profile so you look just right. You have a little statue of yourself somewhere next to your mirror. What they love out there, they love self-rule, they love self-determination, they love being in charge of their own lives. I wonder whether you put that by your calendar. This little god of self-rule next to the calendar and he says, it's all yours to do what you like with. Whereas in fact, your brothers and sisters in Christ, they need you. They need you on a Sunday morning. They need you regularly on a Sunday morning, etc. Sexual fulfillment or just sexual being turned on if you've got a little god of Aphrodite by your, um, by your computer monitor or by the things you buy from the news agents. doesn't matter how innocent they are these days. They've all got pictures in them somewhere. Or property. Is there at the bottom of your tent a little picture of the ideal house you'd like to own? These are the treasures of the Canaanites. And if you hide them at the bottom of your tent, you make us all liable to defeat. And what happens next is horrifying. It's horrifying on a human level. But if you think about it, it's horrifying on a spiritual level. Achan's not a poor man. You notice that? He had various, uh, he had quite a chunk of uh, property. But he was a greedy man. And greed caused him to compromise. Greed led him to join the opposition. And now his family pays the price. He's made Israel liable to destruction. He's caused the death of 36 soldiers, but it's still horrifying. Pays the price. His family pays the price. Excuse me. Come back to that. How old were his children? His children were stoned, were not told. They might have been old enough. They might have been old enough to say, you know, even if they were fairly small, Dad, what's that? You put it in the bottom of the tent? Or they might have been adult children. We don't know. Did all the family know what Dad had brought home? We don't know. And actually, I don't think that's the point. The point is that the wages of sin is death. And the point is that sin is not an individual issue. I guess that's the one thing I'd want you to take away this morning. Sin is not an individual issue. So I think in the New Testament terms, sin is accounted to the individual, but sin and compromise impacts other people and it impacts your family. Especially when your children... Uh, are younger. If you're compromising and the Lord is not present with your family, 
because, because you've compromised, does that impact your kids? Of course it does. Especially if they're little kids, the younger they are, the more it's going to impact them. When your kids are little, the choices you make are essentially the choices they make. So if they can see more older, then they carry their own guilt. If they're younger, then they're swept up in the guilt of Achan. But the same will be true of your kids. They'll be swept up in the choices that you make, especially when they're little. Sin is not an individual issue. But there is an answer. Israel built a new kind of memorial. It's a memorial to a catastrophic mistake. It's a second pile of stones. The first pile of stones were the ones out at the bottom of the river, which remind them of how there was a rescue through the Jordan. There's another pile of stones now where there's remembrance of of a sin. And the valley itself um, gets a name. It's called the Valley of Achor, which means it's the Valley of, uh, of Trouble. But in time, an amazing thing happens. And I want you to turn this up in the Bible. I want you to find uh, Hosea, chapter 2. Now, there's a challenge. It's on page 902. While you're looking it up, this is another later time in Israel's life when again they have compromised. So didn't we, them compromising through uh, the time of Elijah, uh, following other gods here again in Hosea, they've, they've compromised again. And the pictures used in Hosea is, is of, um, of marriage. So Hosea is asked to marry an unfaithful woman. as a picture of God's relationship with his church. There, she's an unfaithful, uh, his, his people, his Old Testament people. And God is, in the beginning of this chapter, is expounding uh, the judgment, the, uh, the discipline he is going to put on his people. But at verse 14, a time comes, and he says, Therefore, I am now going to allure her. Uh, this picture of winning this, wooing this uh, woman that is people back. I will lead her into the wilderness and, and speak tenderly to her. God says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to win her back. <clears throat> then I will give back her vineyards, because that's one of the places of, uh, God has judged. And I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. Isn't that an amazing statement? I will make the valley of Achor uh, a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth. She'll go back to being faithful. As in the day she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked in that day. I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. 
I'm coming to a close, so musicians might want to come up. So in this time of, of later compromise, the, the Lord speaks again. A day is coming of a new covenant. It's a new covenant and it won't just be with Israel, it will be with Gentiles too. And it will not depend on the obedience of the people. A covenant is coming which God has made with you and I, which does not depend on your obedience because it depends on the obedience of Jesus Christ. What an amazing thing. So Achan, one man, brought liability and destruction to his family and and to Israel. But turning around the way that the actions of one affect many, so the actions of Jesus bring God's pleasure, a smile on God's face to sinners who will identify with him, trust him, and, and call him Lord. And there will under Christ come a day when Jesus will judge. And it will, of course, be on the basis then of those who've put their trust in him. But then there will be this lovely picture. One day, one day, we look forward to this one day when there will be a new creation, when finally bow and sword and, and battle will, will be finished. Our fight for the gospel will be over because it will be all done. Our fight for, with compromise and sin will be over. Um, it will be all done. And all will lie down in the land in safety. There'll be a, a, a new heavens and a new earth. And the Lord says, I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. So for the moment, it's the time of battle and we fight on. We fight on for the gospel. We fight on against compromise. Thankfully, as New Testament people, we fight under the umbrella of justification by faith. Our relationship with God is secure. But nevertheless, sin and compromise will impact the church, will impact whether God is present to bless. So let's fight on.